0: practically to build customer loyalty and trust in terms of, you know, offer your client value propositions and experiences that are personalized to them. But it also is a concept that ties to people's purpose at work. So it just feels like a no brainer. And at least like when I think about my own work, what I can do for clients and putting the clients at the heart of what I'm doing is is what drives me, gets me excited about work.
1: You're listening to Sunny Side Up, a B2B podcast that brings you the juiciest insights from go-to-market leaders and practitioners. Hey everyone, welcome to Sunny Side Up. I'm your host, Chris Moody, and today I'm super excited to talk to Julia McClatchy on Gazing into the Future. Julia is an associate partner at McKinsey's Philadelphia office. She's a core member of the firm's wealth and asset management and marketing and sales practices. In her role julia serves life insurance technology companies and wealth and asset management firms on the future of work strategies employee and client experience sales capability development and agile sales and marketing transformations julia lots of great topics there really excited to welcome you to the show thanks for joining us
0: thank you so much chris and hi everyone thrilled to be here
1: okay let's jump right in you have amazing research We love jumping into this, talking about uh, all the things that you're seeing, but you're part of the team that's released the industry-leading report on B2B trends that's called the New B2B Growth Equation, which really sets the stage for the remainder of the year, especially jumping into a new year in 2023. So could you summarize some of the key findings of what you're seeing?
0: Yeah, absolutely, Chris. So just to level set on the research itself, so since 2016, even pre-pandemic, Um, we started serving over 21,000 decision-makers. So these are buyers and sellers around the globe and in industries across the spectrum, right? So tech, finance, industrials, you name it. And our most recent piece of research um, surveyed nearly 3,500 B2B decision-makers across 12 markets globally. And we came away with some really incredible insights that I think impact kind of what is happening in the future of B2B sales. Um, And kind of the headlines are, you know, Buyers are, are more savvy, and they're more demanding than ever. Um, sales is increasingly becoming digital, and sales operating models are becoming more hybrid. And the great attrition had an effect on talent, right? And it did not save the sales um, and marketing industries at all. They, they were very much impacted. So this has left most organizations, especially right now, as we're talking in this kind of you know recessionary environment, there's a real challenge. And I think some companies are using this macroeconomic environment to leapfrog ahead. And ones that are kind of taking action and seizing the moment and saying, okay, we know things are uncertain, but we're going to press forward and really lean into this moment. They are doing a few things. So one, they're putting customers at the heart of their growth. They're breaking the channel mindset. So they're saying, you know, single channel no longer works for us. Let's lean into an omni-channel world. They're creating a much more scalable sales engine across their entire workforce. Speaking of people, they're also rethinking their people strategy in terms of what skills make great salespeople and also where they're sourcing that talent. And then finally, um, they're making sure their changes stick. So I'm sure you guys have found this, but there's a lot more intentionality in terms of change management communication so that you know any kind of transformation they're trying to drive actually has a shot at happening. So those are the five things that we're seeing and excited to dig into any and all of these.
1: Awesome. We need maybe five shows, show per trend, but uh, there's amazing information there. You know, which one caught you off guard? What trend was the biggest surprise to you?
0: I think uh, putting the customer at the heart of growth for a couple of reasons. Um, One is, you know, it's something when you say that out loud, everybody nods vigorously right? Like nobody says, oh yeah, like no, let's not put the, you know, customer at the heart of growth. No one would ever say that. But it, and yet it isn't always done in practice. And I find this fascinating because it's not only the right thing to do, you know, practically to build customer loyalty and trust in terms of, you know, offer your client value propositions and experiences that are personalized to them. um, But it also is a concept that ties to people's purpose at work. Um, So it just feels like a no-brainer. And at least like when I think about my own work, what I can do for clients and putting the clients at the heart of what I'm doing is is what drives me, gets me excited about work. So, this is one that, you know, maybe not terribly insightful, but still like this is something that everybody should be doing.
1: I totally agree. And you know, I, I've often referred to adrenaline hits, and my career. You know, I live for the adrenaline hits. And you have to find roles where you can find those. And talking to customers, there's really no substitute. You get direct quotes learn what they're saying we're redoing our messaging and a lot of our website copy and it's driven by talking to prospects and customers so i think that's extremely important is there anything that stands out to you if we talk about putting the customer at the heart of things do you have any examples that really come to mind
0: uh yeah i've got i mean there's there's so many and i couldn't agree with you more i mean i think only um this is another kind of fascinating factoid and then i'll jump to some examples but Only 8% of B2B organizations are set up to deliver highly personalized marketing content that speaks to decision makers, which is completely wild, right? And so zooming back out of personalization, because that can get, you know, complex, and we can talk about that more just in terms of what analytics drive better personalization. But honestly, it just starts with listening to your customers. And kind of the backdrop to like all the research we'll talk about today is, are you asking your customers how and when they want to be engaged? You know what content resonates with them how many times a year do they want to see you where do they want to see you is it in person is it remote what is their preference and it also just like opens up better conversations more broadly because it shows that you care it shows that you're curious and so you know when done well forget even you know sophisticated ways of of capturing and leveraging customer insights to be predictive et cetera. like it, it really just starts with asking the questions and then using that to inform how you behave and how you interact going forward
1: love that eight percent oh that's such a low number when everyone's talking about account based right i mean it's it's the classic marketing trap where we jump to it a, a new thing and everyone's ready to do it and then you do a well organized survey and you find out people just aren't prepared for that and that's jarring to me but i, I think it's extremely important Um, As you've been watching these and seeing the year play out, how are sales teams adapting to the trends? Have you seen any best practices or learnings you want to share?
0: Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I think one great part of being part of the the sales and channel practice at McKinsey is that we get to study what outperforming organizations do. And I think, you know, and outperformers, meaning companies that beat the average growth rate of their sector. I think two themes. One ties to what we were just talking about, but the first one is analytics, and the second is personalization. So I think first outperformers use analytics to help their sales teams predict more accurately who their potential customers are, um, what are their pain points, what are the next moves they might want to make, and how should you think about engaging with them as early, you know, as possible in the buying journey. So just some facts to kind of back that up. We've seen three out of four outperformers apply kind of just table stakes analytics, like sales planning versus half of the slower growers. And then two out of three outperformers apply analytics use cases to be more granular on deal and account level opportunities versus only half of slow growers. So that's one, analytics. Um, and I think being open to analytics is just as important to leveraging it to you know drive decision making. And then I think the second one is what you and I were just talking about, which is using personalization to reach customers and yeah, even just train sales teams more effectively. So how can you be really precise and leverage all of the data points at your disposal, whether it's like what you and I were talking about, just talking to customers and embedding those insights into future decisions, using you know what you know about them with some non-traditional and creative sources of insight versus just like their past purchasing history. Um, and so really using that to engage more effectively. So I think those two things, if I had to, you know, bubble it up, analytics and personalization are the two things that really stood out.
1: That's great. Very timely for me personally, too. I'm, I'm working with sales on our regional kickoff training and how we're going to message. So all of this is extremely important. And, you know, it reminds me, one of my favorite quotes, I was a product manager for a year and the trainer had this great quote, your opinion, although interesting, is irrelevant. And his point was, it has to be based on data and customers and talking to folks. There's no substitute for that, so that's incredible research and we'll certainly all go download that. We'll be sure to link that up when you write this up, but uh, if we sh- switch gears, talent, everyone is thinking about how to get the best talent, how to retain talent. It's one of the most pressing pressing issues that we see in the entire industry, not just for sales organizations, but for all businesses. How are you seeing people think about training, upskilling, reskilling teams with the rapid pace of change and the market being as competitive as it's ever been?
0: I mean, I agree with you completely on the importance of talent. And as much as technology kind of underpins great execution, sales remains a people-driven function. And it can be really difficult to attract and retain top talent. And just to calibrate on the environment point that you were making, Chris, you know, um, almost 60 million people in the U.S. quit their jobs between 2021, 2022, and average sales turnover is higher. I think three times higher than other functions. So we know kind of that's what's happening on the external side, and then we know from sales executives, whom my colleagues interviewed, uh, that they are rethinking talent in their sales force. And not only are they rethinking it, but rethinking it as a top priority. Ninety-seven percent said they see reskilling their talent or their sales force as a top priority. And I think this makes sense because when you have a great uh, sales talent team, you are able to achieve four to five times higher market growth. And so there's a clear, you know, performance benefit to it. But then also being a great sales rep has kind of changed. Um, you know, it means it's not it's so much more than selling a product. Right. Which has always been the case. But I think it's even more the case in a digital environment. So today, now, you know, it's having top-notch analytical and technical skills. It's being able to develop pattern recognition um, from data to, you know, understand the customer's business objectives. And it's also being able to engage and influence executives from the CEO down, no matter what channel you're engaging them on. So it's all this new stuff. And so what do you do when the job itself is shifted and talent is scarce? You get creative and you try different approaches. And I think... Going back to that theme of analytics that you and I were talking about before, I think using analytics to train your teams is a really interesting tactic. So a quick story about one of my clients, which is that they um, they used analytics really successfully to develop a new training program for their sales reps. And what they did is that they, first they were like, okay, what's what's happening in current state? They found out reps were spending way too much time on non-selling activities. Um, there was a disconnect between how sales managers thought they were coaching reps effectively and how the reps perceived the coaching. And then they, uh, there was also a, a disconnect between sales reps and managers in terms of, you know, what was the, what were the key skills for customer growth? They thought it was all about relationship and network building. And in fact, pipeline management and prospecting and product knowledge turned out to be more important. So the company like zoomed in and focused their training on these skills to improve their coaching program, um, you know, set up a longer term training program and make capability building around those issues, the key enablers of sales growth. And so the last thing I'll say on the analytics piece on this, you know, upskilling, reskilling front is that they also used analytics to make the training more interesting and more digestible. So same thing, right? Like when you use analytics to personalize for your customers, it works. When you use analytics to personalize training for your sales reps, that also works. So it's, you know, how can you boil your training down to micro-learning moments, like to have snackable content that's dispersed, you know, not just in these big, long, day-long training sessions, most of which are on Zoom, but that are in, you know, real-time sessions or quick virtual platform-enabled, you know, modules, whatever it is. It just makes it more interesting and makes it more digestible over time. So big thing is role has changed. New skills are important analytics can really help with the learning uh, and development journey.
1: So many analytics there. A lot of the quotes, I was trying to take notes and say, this is a great tweet. This is a poll quote. And by the time I would type that up, you had another one that I thought was better. So even in your responses, you were hitting us with the analytics. Uh, You almost did this segue, but the capability building aspect, if we think about the classic marketing and sales alignment and it works both ways. I think most traditionally think marketing, helping sales, like they don't want your content, all that. But what we see with account-based, it's actually sales working back towards marketing and marketing working back towards sales, blurring the lines of the funnel and traditional handoffs. But what are the opportunities to kind of mix marketing and sales? What are you seeing there?
0: I have so many thoughts on this because I was a marketer in my past life and I try to you know detach from that sort of instinct of how marketers want to integrate with sales but it it rings true in terms of it's about integration and collaboration similar to the point around you know customers being at the heart of your growth as like such a no-brainer point the collaboration between marketing and sales is another no-brainer point but yet still one that's not done in practice so from our research we know that um nine out of ten b2b decision makers say that marketing and sales need to work more closely together and put an end to overlapping work or silos or however you want to call it. But in practice, that's really difficult because I think it's most difficult because that would require shifting from a sales funnel mindset to a customer buying journey mindset. Um, With sales and marketing working together and marketing, to your point, playing a bigger role in the customer lifestyle rather than simply generating leads that may or may not generate loyalty in the long run. And I think practically, and frankly, when I've seen this, done well. It means both functions, marketing and sales, working together on the same go-to-market strategy, which oftentimes you have, but then you don't typically have marketing and sales teams using the same data, delivering the same messages so that customers don't get frustrated or confused by different messaging or, you know, handoffs that exist across their entire journey. And that's really tough because usually you have separate leaders who have different strategies and different metrics, and there is some coordination, but it's not as fluid as it could be. And the only thing I would add to is that I, you know, in instances where this is like what this looks like in practice is typically when you have um, pods or squads of marketing and sales folks working together, reporting to, you know, a combined business unit leader. So there isn't all this like dotted line confusion of who reports to whom and, you know, what metrics are being used, etc. And they work together, you know, the marketing and sales talent on the same pod, they work together to prioritize and approach customers. So it's like marketing uh, the marketing talent leads with the personalized content, you know, whatever self-serve digital tools they can put out there for customers. They train the sellers to, you know, actually deliver these and talk about them. They educate the sellers on the products, strategies to tailor content. Then, you know, sellers come back and say, here's what's working. Here's what's resonating. Here's what I'm hearing from our customers. And then it's this like nice symbiotic relationship. The last thing I'll say is that I think it requires a lot of trust. And so, you know, thinking about not only the metrics and the reporting structure, but also the change management of how can you build that trust and connectivity on a team?
1: So many good things here. I, this is one I'm going to download and send to every single person. Uh, trust is such a huge issue. I was just building a slide deck and that was actually the whole lead at because there, there are surveys where one team member losing trust, just one, brings down the total trust rating for the whole team by 32%. And if we think about marketing and sales working together, especially, we even heard from a marketing reader the other day, I'd never want to hear sales say, who picked this account? And it was really at the heart of trust, right? Like if you're recommending a terrible account, it creates this massive rift. Um, okay. We talked about digital selling, virtual selling, hybrid selling, whatever term you prefer. It looks like it's here to stay. I don't think that's going to go away. Some industries, maybe, but... Um, What should be factored into sales organizations when they're building and designing world-class teams with how the world has changed over the last few years?
0: Totally. I think what they should be factoring is what their customers want. So, and that's part of the reason why hybrid selling has become such a big and and prominent trend. And we know that from our B2B research, over 65% of companies now prefer remote and digital interactions across the entire journey. That was obviously accelerated by the pandemic, but it was on its way there anyway. And so we've seen in response um, about 40% of organizations add hybrid sellers over the past couple of years. And we also know that hybrid selling is expected to be the most dominant sales strategy by 2024, which is now right around the corner. And I think why is because hybrid reflects our reality and, and reflects the reality of what customers want. So You know, entails a mix of both in person and remote interaction, as well as, you know, self service and e-comm to the extent that that's possible. And that enables a broader set of channels to be used, um, depending on where customers are and what their preferences are. So it's just like, boom, right at the outset, you are being responsive to customers and how and when they want to be engaged, and you're not forcing a specific channel on them. So that in itself is a big shift. And then because hybrid leverages this omnichannel approach, um, it it enables broader and and deeper real-time engagement. So sellers can interact with their customers more frequently. They don't have to just wait until they show up and see each other in person four times a year or whatever the frequency is. And they can easily access information when they're engaging with them remotely. So like even us having this conversation, right? Like I can have multiple screens up with great data, and, you know, impactful stats and homework that I've done to make sure that we can have a really effective conversation that reflects that, you know, I know what your needs are and I'm being responsive to them. The last thing, and this goes back to your talent question from earlier, but a hybrid model fosters more diverse and inclusive organizations, which is a priority for many companies right now, as it should be, because it removes barriers for, you know, really talented people who otherwise couldn't have been part of sales organizations because they couldn't travel. Um you know, or they had to be in a specific region or hub, right? So it just broadens the spectrum of who you can actually attract, which going back to our, you know, issue about attrition in the United States, that's a great unlock. So big fan of of hybrid sales models. And I think there are just a ton of benefits that are really
1: tangible. Totally agree. And uh, it's nice not doing 100,000 plus miles a year, still travel, but Yeah, it is nice being home. That's good. Okay, uh, you get to work with a wide range of leaders. And I I think that's such a huge benefit of being at a company like McKenzie. You're learning every single day. What do the best leaders do differently in developing and nurturing sales talent?
0: It's a good question. I think I might borrow from what I've seen across multiple leaders to kind of consolidate a single view. Um, I think one thing is that they make sure that they have really competitive compensation and they have an incentive structure that reflects what their talent actually values. So in this one, it's worth digging into a little bit. Um, Shifting from just short-term incentives, which are pretty typical in sales, right? Like So orientation around quarterly targets to shifting to longer-term incentives, and then also going beyond just financial incentives to appeal to younger generations of, um, of sales talent. So like, for example, how can you think about, um, you know, just cultural aspects that people really care about or being rewarded and being recognized, um, beyond just the financial angle. So I think financial incentives is certainly one. Um, two is lifelong learning and development opportunities. I think that most of the time when you see great onboarding, The next question I always ask is, okay, so what next? What happens after you get onboarded? Um, And like, how do you constantly prioritize and celebrate people who invest in learning and development? And back to, you know, our earlier part of our conversation, we talked about personalization in learning and development. Like, how do you think about adult learning principles and making sure that you're being, you know, reflective and respectful of how people learn differently? Um, So I think that's two Third is, I think, investing in developing and maintaining a really strong culture, and you hear this a lot in organizations that are starting to pick up on incorporating purpose into their talent messaging, because employees value working for purpose-driven organizations. So I think those three things: incentives, learning, uh, you know, just beyond the onboarding experience, and then how are you investing and in maintaining that strong culture that you know emphasizes collaboration and purpose.
1: Totally agree. I love that. I think every listener can reflect on purpose, especially, and and think about organizations where you felt you had that shared pause and were really motivated by that versus ones where you might have been melling it in a little bit, or maybe the organization didn't have the purpose that you really cared about. So awesome stuff there. Really great things to remember. Um, As I shift into the final section, we're going to ask... Uh, some questions more about you in this section, but uh, as folks are building the 2023 plans, what's your advice to teams as they look to 2023 and beyond? That's a good one.
0: I think, well, one, take the time to recharge before you think about 2023. But then, then three actual things. One is be a champion of the voice of your customers. That can take lots of different forms. In a perfect world, it's highly sophisticated personalization with multiple variables. But just be a champion of the voice of your customer and and try to bring them in at all stages of from product development all the way through to building loyalty. I think the second is be really open to leveraging, you know, analytics to make your sales force smarter. I think the teams who recognize teams and leaders who recognize that analytics are an enabler of spending your time on things that matter and give you greater joy which tend to be in the world of sales being you know in front of your customers and really help shaping solutions with them the better off they're going to be as opposed to seeing it as some sort of nefarious force or thing that is just too difficult to grapple with and then I think the third thing is even if you're confronted with something you know you don't know much about or you've never done before lean into it and remember this is my favorite quote from Winston Churchill, which is that attitude is a little thing that makes a big difference. So I think those three things.
1: Great stuff. Okay. Uh, you have the power to make every single listener read, listen, or watch to whatever you want. What should they go read, listen, or watch?
0: Oh, that's really good. Okay. I will go read. Um, so I, my favorite author of the moment is someone named Anthony Doerr. He wrote Cloud Cuckoo Land, and he also wrote All the Light We Cannot See. And they're both incredible novels that provide this just like great respite from reality and are also just beautifully written. And if you want to just be completely engrossed in something, forget the world around you. Could not recommend that more highly. The other, I'm just going to lean into this question. So that was completely unrelated to what we spoke about today. Semi-related to what we spoke about today, um, a colleague... Re- uh, recommended this a couple of months ago, and I just reread it because I, I haven't read a book in a while where I just like was earmarking every page and writing notes in the margin. But um, there's another book called Invent and Wander, which is the compilation of all of Jeff Bezos's uh, letters to the share letters to shareholders that he wrote over like 20 years, and it's just a really cool way to think about and and learn how he, you know, responds to and thinks about customers and thinks about communicating value propositions. So a little bit of a, like completely unrelated to work semi related to work recommendations.
1: Love that approach too. I'm adding them all on a post-it already written down so I was able to keep up with <laughs> with uh those nuggets. So I'll grab those. Okay, uh now for people. Could you share three folks that are in the B2B space that you think should be on the show? Oh, yes.
0: So, I uh, my favorite part of my job is that I get to work with just the most wonderful people who are constantly curious and frankly, kind of pushing the envelope in terms of what else, what else, what else should we be thinking about to help our clients. So um, I would recommend Jennifer Stanley, Candace Lotkin, Maria Valdevieso de and Lisa Donchak. And that was four people, which I realize went beyond the bounds of your question, but they're just fabulous women with whom I work and couldn't recommend more highly.
1: Hey, four is uh, one better than three. So we'll take it. We will say go four. awesome. We'll be reaching out to those folks. Yeah. And, and then lastly, how can folks get in touch with you after the podcast?
0: Sure thing. Um, so we'd love to hear any questions, thoughts. We're in the middle of our next round of research. So we're going to be coming out with great insights. Come call it, you know, Q1, late Q1 this year. So we'd love to just, you know, hear what's top of mind for folks as we shape that. And feel free to email me. Julia underscore McClatchy at McKinsey.com or find me on LinkedIn as well and feel free to message me there.
1: Awesome. I'm sure you will hear from a lot of folks. I mean, there are so many stats that I envision will be on slides <laughs> from this this show. So that outstanding. Thank you so much for your time. Really enjoyed having you on the podcast today and let's definitely stay in touch.
0: Thank you so much, Chris. It was great to be here and really appreciate you uh, taking the time and Can't wait to hear from folks to see what questions come up.
1: Today's episode is made possible by Demandbase. Demandbase is smarter GTM for B2B brands to help marketing and sales teams spot the juiciest opportunities earlier and progress them faster. Thanks so much for tuning in to this episode of Sunnyside Up. If you liked what you heard, please rate and review us, and subscribe to our show on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you consume podcasts. You can also find us on YouTube and Demand-Based TV.